Welcome everybody back to another episode of True American. And in this episode, we're going to continue on the discussion that we had in our last episode about the radical uh, racial movement going on in America today. And I just want to start this episode off by saying that it's important that we remember that yes, police killings of black Americans is an epidemic in America that literally happens every single day, and it's growing. In 2018, a whopping 17 unarmed black men were shot by police under varying and often criminal circumstances. And that number increased in 2019 to nine unarmed black men under varying and often criminal circumstances. This isn't the time for us to talk about the preventable black-on-black crime and the totally reversible economic stagnation which affects black communities thanks to welfare, Democrat policies, minimum wage laws, among others. 5,000 plus deaths every year isn't really important right now. So please just stop bringing it up and let's focus on the big problems. Like the 17 unarmed black men shot under varying circumstances often criminal by police in 2018 and the nine in 2019. We need to keep talking about this more and we need to make sure to remind all of the non-black people who haven't really done anything wrong and who condemn the killing of innocent people by literally anyone, including the police, just how much they are part of the problem. We need to consider the opinions of all the black voices who agree lockstep with left-wing ideology because it's time we faced parts of the truth that some of us agree with and which most of the facts completely dispute. Guys, this is an election year and therefore it is a perfect time to focus on these pressing problems because they're significantly more relevant right now that political careers depend on how we react to them. So let's all stand in solidarity with the left-wing movement and the Democrat Party. That's something that I wrote on Facebook this past week because if you're anyone who's following what's going on with the riots and the protests in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, killing, then at this point, if you've got a brain, you have to just be saying to yourself that all of this stuff is ridiculous. Uh, people are have been whipped up into this crazy frenzy where the facts simply don't matter. And I think it is important that we talk about what are the facts because uh, I really hate, I'm a white person and I really hate getting this onus placed on me like somehow I'm part of a problem um, for other people in America when I do my best every day to just go to work, uh, work as hard as I can, do the best that I can, and I'm polite to just about everybody that I meet. I have a bit of a fiery tone when it comes to things that I write on Facebook and whatnot, and I'm pretty merciless when it comes to a debate. And there are scenarios like that where, you know, I kind of have it in my mind that while I don't mind hurting someone's feelings if what they're saying is completely ridiculous. But for the most part, I'm not a confrontational person and I really feel bad if I ever do anything that upsets people. And that's why facts are important here because the facts of uh, what happens in black communities in America do not support the 
progressive notion that there's systemic racism and that, uh, or that there's implicit bias on behalf of white people and non-black people, uh, or that there is an implicit bias by the police. So I thought I'd just start out with um, actually talking about a factual mistake I made because this is one of these things that I learned uh, studying economics, and this is actually a lesson that I learned way back in high school, where I had a really good economics teacher, and one of the things that he really liked to emphasize was that since economics is a is a dispassionate study of the numbers and data and incentives, you have to be willing to acknowledge that situations that you're looking at are more complicated than you might think, and therefore uh, you can easily make mistakes. You can actually make mistakes even based on uh, completely true uh, 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 assumptions. Like you, you may you may know that criteria A, B, and C are all correct, and based on what you know about them you draw a conclusion, but then you might not realize that there's criteria D, E, and F that are equally relevant, and since you weren't accounting for them, they skewed your entire input. So at work, I made kind of like this sassy meme that was uh, one of those who would win memes, and I, I totally, uh, I didn't totally flub it, but I got I got some numbers wrong. So I'll just tell you right now that it's important. What I learned in economics was uh, that I once was in the middle of a group uh, assignment. It was like an in-class thing. And I was really good at econ. Like I was one of the students that really it jived with me. I really appreciated it. And I did well on all the exams. And I, I just, I mean, I still study it today because I just love it. And I was sitting there with this other student. Um, his name was Charlie. And he... Uh, he and I disagreed about something. And like I said, I'm a fiery dude. So when I disagree with you, I'm really going to like, I'm going to argue that thing down to the bone. And you really have to, to beat me down to the point that you've shown that everything I'm bringing to the table is incorrect in some capacity. And it, basically, he did that. You know, we, he had one interpretation of, of this problem we were trying to work on and I had a different interpretation and it turned out that um, I was I was doing a computation incorrectly. I remember that when I realized this I said oh dude you're right I'm totally wrong and we happened to be sitting close to our teacher's desk his name was Mr. Anderson and he, he said everyone stop and he stopped the whole class and he says Alex what did you just say? And I didn't really get that he was referring to the fact that I was like, oh, I'm, I'm totally wrong. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. He's like, T say what you just said. And I said, I think what I said was I was totally wrong. And he said, exactly. He was like, this is important to be able to admit that you're wrong. Uh, even if your overall point might have some validity. If you make factual errors, you need to correct them. Uh, so it's an important lesson that I learned there. And I don't know why, but for some reason, that particular thing stuck with me. Uh, and it's one of the more uh, beneficial things you can do as a character building thing is actually to, uh, it can be hard to recognize, but when you recognize a time that you are wrong about something, what you actually need to do is right away 
correct it, and own up to it. This is something that even Dale Carnegie teaches in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. As he says, you take responsibility early for your mistakes and you uh, apologize early and often. His premise being that basically people can't really hold you, people can't hold you at fault forever. So the sooner that you that you start trying to make amends, the faster that you'll get back in people's good graces. And secondarily, that people get people actually get embarrassed by how apologetic or upfront you might end up being about something you did that was not good or was a mistake. And they'll be more eager to forgive you just to move on. So. Anyway, uh, just to illustrate this fact that, that, that what you say, the facts matter, uh, I made this meme, and it was uh, supposed to compare this social media trend of posting black squares on Instagram to meaningful efforts to combat you know, problems in black communities. So the meme was like, who would win? Uh, black community leaders and police partnering together to prevent the... Uh, over 5,000 annual black-on-black murders and also reduce the uh, number of police killed uh, in these neighborhoods or posting black squares on Instagram, right? So if you know these memes, you kind of get where I was there. But it turned out I, uh, I had gotten my number from an article written by Daniel Horowitz for Conservative Review that um, there were 7,400 and something uh, black homicides, and he had cited the uh, that when the race of the victim and the offender were known, 88.9% of black homicide victims were killed by a black offender. And I misread this this whole sentence, this whole paragraph, as saying that the number of black on black murders happening annually was over five, you know, was was in his article 7,000 and something. And when I went to his data source, I read the tables for each different year and saw, oh, they're all over 5,000. And so I thought, okay, awesome. This is, well, not awesome, like, that that's a good thing. But I said, okay, I've got my numbers. I can say this statement and it's totally true. And I even told my boss, I'm like, yeah, I fact-checked it. Only to have someone inquire later on because they wanted to be able to share that source with someone else. And I happened when pulling up the data set to provide it, I happened to stumble across a different set of charts also provided by the same source, which was the Uniform Crime Report from the FBI. And this table looked a little different. It actually showed specifically the race and uh, gender of offenders on the horizontal axis against the race and gender of victims on the vertical axis. And I saw, wow, I happened to be on the 2016 table and I saw, oh, it's showing me that um, there were only like 2,500 black on black murders in 2016. I was like, damn, that's like a relatively good year. I mean, that's not a good, that's not a good thing, but it's, I was like that compared to 5,000, that's like a pretty good year. But then I thought, uh oh, I must've made a mistake. And it turned out I had totally made a mistake and I had totally misread Daniel Horowitz's number. What he had been talking about was that there were over seven, that there were 7,000 and something black, or, uh, black homicide victims in 2018. 
And because I misread that number as meaning it was black on black, when I went to the data set he cited, I got to the overall total numbers. So I just want to correct that and throw it out there. I mean, the situation is still bad and it does not really change the comparison here because in, uh, in America in 2018, for example, there were only 17 unarmed black men killed by police. And most, if not all of those, because it's the situations in each is not clear, uh, there was some form of criminal activity. There was a resisting arrest situation or uh, the suspect attempted to fight the police or take their gun. And in several of those instances, the definition of being unarmed is very charitable. Like you could be fleeing in a, in a vehicular chase with a gun in the car in the seat next to you, but because it was not on your person, uh, you're considered unarmed. So those things are important to know about because uh, when you say it's an unarmed person, you think people kind of read it as like, well, he was just walking down the street. And while that appears to be what happened to George Floyd, which is one of the particularly tragic elements of his case, that it does not mean that that's reflective of every unarmed shooting uh, by the police. And 17 is a ridiculously small number. I mean, that's not to belittle people's lives, but that's statistically insignificant. Uh, I mean, that's less than one, almost, it's almost one per month nationwide, which is, it's absurdly safe. And the number of white unarmed uh, victims of a police shooting are double, if not more, than the number of black unarmed killings. Uh, as well as, I think, the total killings by police uh, when you include armed people. So, and then in 2019, that number went down to nine for black unarmed victims. So it's literally less than one per month. Uh, so that was my whole point here. It's like, okay, that's not the real problem. And we want to highlight the real problem in black communities, which is the amount of black on black murder and crime. Well, so I want to give you the real numbers just for context. So total black homicide in the United States every year, it, since 2008 at least, this is where I went back to, has been over 5,000 per year. It was 5,700 in 2008, 5,500 in 2009, 5,500 in 2010, 6,300 in 2011, 6,400, then 6,200, then 6,095, then 7,000 in uh, 2015, and then up almost to 8,000 at uh, on uh, 2016, again almost 8,000 in 2017, and then 7,400 in 2018. But the number of black-on-black -black murders is roughly half of those, and that's you know that's still huge. It's really sad. It, in 2008, it was 2,700. In 2009, it was 2,600. In 2010, it was 2,500. Then 2,400. Then 2,400. 2,200. 2,200 in 2014. 2,380 in 2015. 2,500 in 2016. 2,600 in 2017. And then again in 2018. So this is the whole point I'm trying to make here is, is like when the the facts are really important here because the comparison of 17 unarmed black men shot by police to 2,000, over 2,000 per year or over 5,000 per year, you know, the number, it's important that you get the number right. But I think anyone who's reasonable would say that 
The problem is obvious no matter if it's 2000 or 5000. 17, not the thing that there should be national riots about and not the thing that there should be social action um, and, and uh, police departments being defunded. There shouldn't be these radical Black Lives Matter movements calling for eight can't wait and telling police officers that they need to, you know, out, you know, outlaw chokeholds, which a lot of police departments already don't do, that they can't shoot at a moving vehicle, which is like, well, sometimes there's a criminal in a moving vehicle shooting at you, and you need to shoot back for your safety and the safety of the community. You know, that's how drive-by shootings happen, that you need to warn of, uh, potential offenders before you're going to shoot. And then some of these, this is particularly one of the ones that I just, just so ridiculous because it implies that police are just walking up to random people on the street and just shooting them. And that's not what the police do. They catch a person during the commission of a crime and they tell them to stop and they say, hands up, down on the ground, face down, blah, blah, blah. They come over, they handcuff you. These are all warnings. I mean, if they, if they seriously want a scenario where a police officer is supposed to be in the middle of a, of a dangerous situation with potentially an armed criminal during the commission of a crime, and there's innocent bystanders around who they also need to be mindful of, do you really seriously expect a police officer to be like, hey, freeze, hands up. All right, buddy, I'm telling you, I'm going to shoot. No, I'm going to shoot. Like, that's not how it is. People are supposed to understand the rules of the game when it comes to the police and how you engage with them, which is that if a police officer pulls you over, for example, or stops you on the street, it doesn't matter if you think that what they're stopping you for is um, valid or not. If you think it's not valid, there are mechanisms in our legal system for you to have that corrected. So all you need to do is be polite to the officer, do what they're asking you to do, get their badge number, all right? And if they give you a ticket or if they arrest you for some reason, then you have their badge number and you also have the ability to go contest a ticket or a fine or anything like that. And I've, you know, people think that white people, or I don't say people think, radical racial activists like to say that white people don't understand what it's like to have to deal with a a police officer treating you unfairly and that it's not true because uh, there's police officers of all stripes and the and although we want all officers to be great people sometimes there are officers being super irritating i can just give a simple example okay and how i dealt with it um, when i was a college student i used to take this shortcut from ucla over to go to the Best Buy that's off of Sawtell in Los Angeles. And a good shortcut that you can take to get there when traffic is really bad is that you actually dip down into the Veterans Affairs um, area uh, just past the Veterans Cemetery. You cut underneath Wilshire Boulevard, and then you take this little side street that spits you out over onto like Ohio or something like that. All right. So when you come up to the part where you're going to go under Wilshire, you... Uh, you have a stop sign there, and then you make a left turn. So I came down, I pulled up, got to the stop sign, stopped, waited for like a second, no cars, literally no cars anywhere. 
And I turn left, and I'm coming down the tunnel, and there's a police officer who's had his car parked around the, the corner there in the opposite direction. And he's not, he wasn't in view of me, and I, neither I nor him could see each other when I was at the stop sign. But all of a sudden, he flips on his lights, and he, he whips a Yui, and he pulls, he pulls up, and I, I stopped. And I asked him what was up when he came over, and he said, oh, well, you ran that stop sign, and you almost hit that car over there. And I was like, what do you mean I ran that stop sign? Like, I totally didn't. And I really didn't. This is not me, like, denying a thing I did. I, like, I'm not really one of those people who does, like, a California stop where you roll through. I'm not saying that I stopped for five or six seconds, but my car comes to a complete stop. So I was like, I was like, okay, I, I don't think that I ran that stop sign, but, you know, and also what car? Like, there definitely was no car. But he was just saying, he was a young cop, and he kind of was in a bad mood. He was just saying that, oh, well, there was a cop, there was a car that drove by and you almost, um, you, you barely avoided hitting them because you didn't stop at that stop sign. And this is just a bold-faced lie, okay? This police officer was just pulling things out of his ass. And so he gave me a ticket and it ended up being a super expensive ticket because I was on the veterans um, affairs property and that's apparently federal property and the ticket is higher. But I didn't get in this cop's face about it. I didn't say, hey, man, screw you. You're out to get me. You're lying, blah, blah, blah. And he was lying. All I did was once he gave me that ticket, I contested it, and I actually opted to have a court date. So on a random Friday in early in the morning at like 7 o'clock, I went to the uh, <laughs> courthouse in downtown L.A., showed up for my hearing, and guess what? Whenever you contest a ticket and you pick a court date, the officer who cited you is supposed to appear before the court. And if they don't appear before the court, then your ticket and fine are waived. Well, the police officers don't have time to show up for that stuff. So, bam, done. Um, and you might say, oh, well, colored people shouldn't have to go through that kind of inconvenience. And my response is, no one should have to go through that kind of inconvenience because hopefully police aren't doing shady things like citing people who didn't drive through a stop sign because they need to hit a quota. But the fact of life is that in varying ways, people are not perfect. And so the question that race activists like Black Lives Matter need to ask is, would we rather advocate that uh, black Americans antagonize the police and get themselves from being in a situation that was otherwise manageable with barely any inconvenience to life-threatening situations? Or do we say, look, life is not easy and it's no one's job to make it so for you. So why don't you just uh, go with the flow here and do what is the, the uh, socially, uh, the, what is the common social construct within the legal system? And I just don't, I just don't believe that anyone's going to like listen to this and come back with, oh, well, you know, there's implicit bias against black people and they wouldn't have their day in court. That's BS. I was the only white guy that was in that courtroom the whole day. And there was like a dozen other people doing the same thing. Half of them were black, some of them were Asian, some were Latino. It, it just doesn't hold water. Anyone with life experience knows that racism and systemic biases are not actually a thing in American life. So facts matter, all right? And... Um, and we shouldn't encourage people to put themselves into dangerous situations regardless of the facts. And, we, and uh, we should not encourage people 
to uh, be uh, aggressive towards the police when the police are actually there to defend you. In um, Candace Owens, uh, in the Candace Owens show episode with Brandon Tatum, Brandon Tatum makes this uh, you know obvious point, but it's so obvious that no one even thinks about it. She was like, you know, if if white police officers were so racist, why would they even bother patrolling and protecting black neighborhoods? Like if you were if you were this terrible white cop who hated black people and you were assigned to go patrol a given neighborhood, why if you were racist, why wouldn't you just, you know, not do it and just log your hours as if you did? Bam. They know. They go and they put their lives in danger knowing that thanks to, you know, the Ferguson lie that uh, there's a target on their backs, thanks to people like Obama blaming police for all the problems in the black community, you have police who get assassinated by protesters and rioters and activists, and yet they still go do it. The, the presence of police in these communities, especially white police, alone is uh, a, a discounting factor to the idea that there is uh, systemic racism in the police. So, you know, I... And this is one of the funniest things. So uh, they throw out stuff like systemic racism. And I was thinking about this the other day. I'll bring it back to economics here because I I just want to constantly reemphasize the fact that if you study economics, all right, and you can go pick up Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell right now. It's a fantastic book that is catered to the lay audience. It doesn't have a ton of charts or graphs or crazy computations or numbers that you have to keep track of. It's, uh, it's written in plain English. It describes scenarios and incentives, which is all economics is about. Economics is not about what people um, want. It's not about complex decisions. It's about what are the incentive scenarios and how will those impact the way people make choices. And that's a super big, it's a super important distinction that you need to understand. So anyway, um, studying economics will change the way you look at everything. And it's not that hard of a science to understand because you live it, you just may not think of it in economic terms. So since I study economics, I, I was thinking about this idea of systemic concepts, all right? There is such a thing as a systemic process or a systemic effect. The problem is, is that when you understand what those are, you see that there's no such thing as systemic racism. And it also happens to be that the reason why all of these activists simultaneously promote race baiting social justice uh, and simultaneously attack capitalism in the free market as some kind of like white man's wealth scheme is because the understanding of capitalism requires an understanding of systemic processes in the market. And since they do not understand those processes, they dislike capitalism. And also since they don't understand those processes, they misattribute individual and localized acts of what could be racism as a systemic element. Let's just jump into that, okay? This may be in the weeds for people, but I'll try to keep it out of the weeds. The first thing we need to talk about is just um, why do people do what they do in the market? Like, why? Uh, what is the cost 
incentive to you to make a decision, for example, um, to buy eggs at the grocery store. This is a super simple example. You've got a certain amount of money in your pocket and you know that you need to buy some things from the grocery store. And you would say to yourself, well, okay, I need to get cheese and I need to get milk and I need to get bread and I need to get eggs. And I've got $15, okay? And you find out that eggs cost five bucks for for a, a carton of eggs and everything else you've got added up costs 10 bucks, okay? So great, you've got the money you need. And the question you have to ask yourself is, why would you then, what, you know, when you're at the store, why don't you buy, for example, two cartons of eggs, okay? The reason you don't buy two cartons of eggs when you could clearly afford it is that you have alternatives that constrain you, which is that you need to get these other things and the cost of getting the eggs is not actually the price of the eggs, the $5. The cost are the alternative things you could have done with those $5. And you have you have a, uh, a goal here, which is to get eggs, milk, cheese, bread, all right? And you lose any number of those other things if you buy more eggs than you need. So in that way, there's, a, there's an incentive to you to allocate your budget according to the prices. But what people need to understand is that the price of a thing is not the cost of a thing. The price of a thing is actually, uh, or the, the cost of a thing is actually the alternative uh, things that you give up to get it. So if you decide today, um, you have a choice. You can either go up to a really beautiful uh, creek up, up in the mountains and spend your day kind of relaxing in the sun, which I recommend. It's a super fun thing to do. Or you can go to, uh, to a concert, uh, a daytime concert that's taking place uh, at this park, which can't do both. There may be a price to pay for doing the concert, and there may be an access fee for going to this creek, potentially, or you might buy lunch while you're there, and there's a price there. But that's not the cost. If you choose to go to the creek, the cost was the alternative going to the concert and vice versa. And thousands and thousands of people are making these decisions all the time. What a price is, the price is the systemic mechanism that coordinates all these people's decisions. Because you don't want to show up at the grocery store, for example, in need of a, of a well, let's make it, let's say that uh, instead of bread, you needed toilet paper because, you know, everybody was scrambling for toilet paper about a month or so ago. You don't want to show up at the grocery store and find out, whoa, all the toilet paper's gone. And the people who supply the toilet paper at the grocery store, the people you know, that they stock the shelves, they don't want a bunch of customers showing up and wanting something like toilet paper, finding out they can't get it, and then going to a different competitor. So, and then there are the, the people who actually sell the toilet paper to the grocery stores at the manufacturer level. They don't want to produce too much toilet paper because then they're wasting their time and efforts where they could have been investing them otherwise. And they don't want to produce too little because then they're not maximizing the, the profit that they can make by selling them to the grocery stores. These are all decisions that, are, that millions of people are making in tons of minute ways, in tons of big ways, in various time-dependent scenarios, in various geographically-dependent scenarios. Um, and the incentives affecting these decisions are constantly changing because 
you need eggs today, but you don't need eggs tomorrow because you bought eggs today. Or, oh, you're just tired of having scrambled eggs for breakfast. You decide you want to switch it up. Today, you're going to start getting oatmeal instead. All right? Suddenly, this information needs to be conveyed to the people who produce oat, uh, the oats for oatmeal or who produce the eggs for you to buy eggs. And so if I'm someone who's in the dairy business, I may be asking myself, well, how do I get the information that the customers out there are transmitting to me about how much cheese or how much yogurt or how much milk that they want? Because uh, I need to decide what's more valuable to me. Do I output straight up milk or do I do something a little more um, complex because people want cheese and I and so I, I make cheese or do I make yogurt or blah, 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 right? The price at every step along the way is aggregating that information because since the amount of money that you have is constrained, it's a really good way. I mean, you the amount of time and other things you have is constrained, but it's a lot harder to account for those. The money is this simple metric. That price is a, is a function of systemic information being communicated everywhere. And the overall effect of this in a free market is that it allows everyone along the way to get the relevant information they need. Not too much, not too little, not extemporaneous information, just the relevant information about what to do with the time and resources that they have. Whether they're a producer or a consumer of a given good, no matter what the scenario is. The overall benefit is that you get wealth creation and economic growth because is because as long as people are getting the relevant information through the price then they have what they need to uh, avoid misallocating their time and resources the the producer of milk and cheese when they make their decision does not want to end up having chosen to make a bunch of cheese and then only half of it sells and they haven't made enough milk so they've only given half as much as what was demanded, they've lost money and time and effort in two different ways, all right? This is a, a huge concept that you have to understand about economics and what it means to have something that is systemic because when you go to the grocery store, you are not thinking to yourself, I will pay this $5 for a carton of eggs. It will convey important information to the people who provide the eggs at the grocery store. They, in turn, will take this information and via another price, they will convey that information on or a certain amount of important information on to the people who make the milk and the eggs and blah, blah, blah. Okay, you don't think about it that way. All you say is, I got 15 bucks, I got a list of things I need to get, and I'm on with my, I'm on with my day, all right? Everyone plays a part in this without realizing it. That is what makes it systemic, okay? And this brings us to systemic racism. The, there is no element of what the left describes as systemic racism which truly reflects a systemic process. They want to say, for example, that everyone has, uh, especially white people, has an implicit bias and that the system is set up against them. And then they'll throw out, you'll say, give me an example of what is systemic racism or a systemic bias. And they'll say, well, back in the day, city planners got together and they drew uh, lines around it on maps, on neighborhoods, 
about where it was desirable and undesirable to invest. And this is called redlining. And it so happened that black communities tended to be outlined as undesirable for investment. Well, okay, maybe that's totally true. But that doesn't, it's not a systemic process. That means that a group of people, identifiable, particular people, sat down and we don't know the thought process that went into them drawing those lines, but it may have turned out to be absolutely racist. It could be a coincidence because again, you may be making assumptions based on A, B, and C, and and based on that input, your, your conclusions are totally accurate, but you've forgotten about D, E, and F. And what you may find is that, for example, when they did that, uh, the demographic, the geographic demography of a city um, might have had that there was a, a particularly poor part of town and that maybe well over 50% of the, the black residents lived in that part of town and the remaining 50% were evenly distributed around the rest of the city based on varying income levels. So when those people sat down and they said, well, the problem with investing in real estate in this part of town here, see, is that there's a lot of crime and also uh, it's really out of the way. You see it's on the other side of the railroad tracks here and a lot of people don't commute to that side because it's hard to cross the railroad because it just takes longer because there's always trains going back and forth. So that's not a good place for us to invest in real estate. We'll invest on this side of the tracks over here where it appears to be that um, there are people that have more money and more mobility. None of those decisions would be racist, but it would have the unintended consequence of investing more in parts of, of a community where uh, there isn't as high a proportion of, of a black population. Alternatively, they could have been just being racist. They could have had the demographic information on hand and said, oh, look, here's where all the black people are. Here's 50% of the black people live in this area. Let's outline that. That's not good for investment. Moving on. And look, here's where all the white people live. Let's invest there. Whether it's a racist decision that they made or a coincidental decision that they made doesn't matter when it comes to systemic racism because neither of those is systemic. You could pull up the minutes from that meeting, you could find out the identities of those people, and you could say, look, I can prove that the, the goal here was to be racist or not. All right, the same is true. Uh, and by the way, when it comes to this redlining thing, uh, the left doesn't let you off the hook because when money isn't invested in poor neighborhoods, uh, especially in real estate in poor neighborhoods, they call it redlining. But when money is invested in poor neighborhoods, they call it gentrification. And they don't want either one, apparently. There's huge billboards up in LA that say fight gentrification. At the same time that there's all kinds of social media activism bitching about redlining. Okay, so they're confused. But let's take another example. Suppose it was police violence, okay? It appears to be the case in the killing of George Floyd that this was just a straight up killing. I don't th think that any real information has come out about the, the minutes or activities of the police officers or George Floyd directly leading up to his arrest. Like there's been some speculation and some kind of vague accounts, but they're, the thorough investigation of it hasn't been done. It just looks to be that he was minding his own business and then killed. And a lot of people are saying, well, that is racism. It's a white cop, it's a black man, and that's all they need to know. But you don't know that that means it was a racially motivated crime. 
uh, it might be, you know, it might be an accurate assumption, but again, you don't know it yet. And even if it was racially motivated, that's a bad cop. It, there's no evidence that uh, there's a systemic incentive scheme for police to kill black Americans. There are actual studies on police violence that find that officers in general are more likely to shoot a white suspect than a black suspect, and that when the suspect is black, the white officers are significantly less likely to shoot at them. And, and that's, a, uh, that's about as close to a systemic element as you can get when it comes to police because uh, the way these studies are done is they just put people into hundreds and hundreds of rapid, uh, quick decision-making scenarios where they don't really have a ton of time to think, and uh, you find out, oh, the bias is actually the opposite direction of what you expect. That's why there's these shows like uh, 100 Humans on Netflix, you know, and they even do this scenario where they're having people shoot uh, in like a target range at people. And they're like, oh, my God, they all shot the black guy. And it's like <laughs> you had each person do one uh, run and you didn't have them do it under the proper conditions to actually truly test that, which would be you set up the scenario of you're, this is uh, you need to shoot first because some of the people that are going to pop out have a gun and if they if they tag you first you lose and you need to rack you need to win you need to take down all the people with guns don't shoot any of the people with cell phones and we're by the way we're going to run this like several hundred times until you're basically really tired and only running on instinct okay so when the show like 100 humans does these type of tests they get completely skewed results because their data set isn't big enough and they haven't set up the conditions of the experiment correctly the police, the FBI, they're actually interested in doing these things correctly. They do it right, and the results they get belie the myth of uh, systemic anti-black bias in the police. Uh, when they say that, um, well, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, in public education, look, uh, black students are perpetually stuck in failing schools, okay? Okay. Um, and uh, they're not given the best teachers. Well, again, you need to look at what are the incentives in this scenario. You can say that, I mean, this is the, the logical conclusion of that argument must be that the teachers all gather around and they all agree that the worst should go hang out with the black kids and the best should go hang out with the rich white kids. But you, you just, you know that that's not what the teachers are doing. Um, I mean, man, we give uh, these social activists also offer a lot of love to teachers on social media. So it's, it's hard to imagine that they think that that's what's going on. No, what happens is that you have policies like um, locking people in with a zip code to a given school. So what you end up doing is that you set up an incentive scenario where if there's a really good neighborhood, bam, you've insured really good in terms of like it's low crime, good incomes in general, good good moral values, good uh, amount of family structure and community involvement, okay? You lock that zip code down, stick a public school in the middle of it. You are, you know, ensuring that there will not be bad influences coming in into the education there. 
vice versa, if you take a community that's very poor that might have some some issues with drug abuse that could have uh, issues of uh, uh, of um, poor family cohesion and things like that, then what you end up doing is you exacerbate the problem. You provide the incentives for as many people as can afford to move out of that area uh, to a neighborhood that has uh, that gets them away from those problems. You incentivize them to leave if they can. Or you incentivize them to spend all of their money getting their kid into a private school or a charter school that takes them out of that community. And so what you end up doing is you create a constant cycle that drains neighborhoods that, and it, this can be so minor because um, you, you're draining neighborhoods that have uh, some bad social influences, no matter how prevalent they are when the, situ- when the, when the uh, scenario is enacted, they slowly start to drain over time. And th- this is actually visually apparent because if you watch Milton Friedman's Free to Choose series, he actually talks about the issue of welfare in uh, a poor uh, New York City project like five years after these projects were built and people moved in there and all the welfare was expanded. And he talks to a guy who's like, well, I was a nurse, but um, now it's like I make more money being unemployed. I can pay for my kids' school medical bills you know, take care of my wife and all that, I get a bigger income being unemployed on welfare than I do as a nurse. So I don't, you know, but I, I've, I've lost all sense of like my manliness and purpose in life. And I don't know how I'll ever get out of it because if I get out of it, I lose the money and can't afford to take care of the people that I love. So that guy literally just explains the problem. And then fast forward to the mid nineties when John Stossel basically did a revamp of free to choose, um, he visits the same neighborhood and it's so much worse. So what you see is that you can have a scenario where a community that is 51% uh, doing great and 49% not doing so great will be transformed into a community that is 100% doing great because the positive influences are incentivized and the negative ones are disincentivized Meanwhile, the opposite is true. If you're 51% negative and 49% positive, the negative things will slowly take over because the pos- the people who who could afford to have been an inspiration and helped out the community, they just get out because they know now they're stuck. There's no point. The incentives just line up that way. Okay. And then what you end up having is uh, that the best schools happen to be in neighborhoods with the higher incomes stronger family structures, etc., whereas the really failing schools end up being in the also failing neighborhoods that have crime and drug problems and a lot of family issues going on. That's not racism. The outcome is, uh, is uh, what is it? It correlates to racial demographics, unfortunately, in America, but the intention is not racist. That's one of the problems here is, is and, and again, when it comes to things like school choice, that's an initiative that would actually fix that scenario. And yet so many politicians oppose school choice. And you have to ask yourself, do black politicians oppose school choice, which would fix a lot of the racial dichotomies in America 
because they're racist against black people? I don't think so. But they have their own incentives that lead to a result that appears racist. So I'm not accusing them of racism. I'm just saying that as I would not accuse a black politician who 100% supports policies that trap black people in poverty of being racist, you should not accuse all cops or all white people or really all anyone of being racist just because some of the results of their decisions end up having racial disparities. There's nothing systemic about these things. You can actually straight up identify scenarios where the people are being racist or are not being racist. And here's the thing about systemic racism. If it were truly the way that the left describes it, everyone has an implicit bias. The systems and structures were set up to enable the oppression of black people for the benefit of white people. Then why would there, why would anyone pay any attention to what's going on right now? Wouldn't we all just be like, nah, who gives a shit? Like, would there be major coverage of these, uh, of uh, George Floyd's killing? Would any of the police ever hold back? For, you know, there's a protest and they act like there's real violence being done here, but there isn't. Um, I, I have a, this guy that I'm friends with on Facebook, but I, I just loathe him as a human um, that who was in my fraternity named Addison Yang. He's a jerk, you know, he's a pompous prick. And he's also, you know, a communist sympathizer from the standpoint that he, nothing he ever says um, is more positive about America than it is negative. And he very often talks about how great various communist countries are, especially China, but not just China. So the other day he posted a, an image on Facebook and it was the picture of the uh, Tiananmen Square tank man. And he wrote, upon reflection, the infamous tank rolling into Beijing during Tiananmen Square protests showed more restraint than many cops over the past few days. And this was just jackassery, but it, it makes the point about people on the left, which is that uh, they, uh, they have no concept of what true intolerance looks like. So I looked this up because Tiananmen Square was a huge massacre. Turns out that Tiananmen Square, the shootout, the shootout was, uh, was uh, the, or the, the massacre happened on June 4th, 1989, whereas the uh, tank photo happened on June 5th. So he's saying, well, you know, the Chinese government, they really showed a lot of restraint in this photo relative to today. The day after the Chinese government had killed several thousand people during a, a protest that was actually a peaceful protest. It was like a hunger strike. Um, but he has no concept of history and he has no concept of what intolerance really looks like. Anyway, um, what, if, we did, if, if systemic racism and implicit white bias was a real thing in the United States, wouldn't the cops just do what they did in China? They would just roll in, shoot all the black protesters and walk away. And it would be lost to the history books like Tiananmen Square. And, and for the most part, no one in the society would care about it. That's not the case. Uh, we give these things extra undue attention. And you have people acknowledging things that are not true, like the idea that cops are killing black Americans on a daily basis around the country. That's just not true. There actually aren't enough in a given year for it to be a daily occurrence. Period. End of story. That's how math works. 
okay? And the scenarios in which the person was not in the commission of a crime are even less so. And the, the scenarios like with George Floyd are, are just so rare that, uh, well, as, you know, as uh, Dennis Prager would say, it's, these scenarios are so rare that people like Jesse Smollett have to invent racial hoaxes in order to make it a big deal. So, um, again, if it was systemic, we wouldn't think about it as a social issue. We would simply say, whatever, that's how it's supposed to be. Like, why are you even raising a stink? What's wrong with you? What's, up? What's wrong with your brain? Furthermore, there would be no such thing as, as black economic and social advancement because the only, for, let's bring back to the market here. What would you need to do in order to make sure that the uh, expansion of wealth in a free market reversed itself? Well, the only thing you could do, since it's a systemic process that contributes to that, and it is run by people making reasoned decisions of, within the constraints that they have to operate in, like the fact that you have $15 and you need a certain amount of groceries, so you cannot buy more than you can afford, and you also cannot buy more of what you need than what you need, because it will mean losing out on the alternatives, which you also need. You would have to not only make bad decisions, on your own and do it really inefficiently by the way because you literally can't go with $15 and buy 10 times what $15 will buy you so you can only underspend essentially um, and then you would also have to somehow convince millions of other peoples in millions of different contexts to also reverse their incentive uh, based behavior so uh, it's basically not possible to do uh, and that's the thing. If there was implicit systemic racism in America, what that means is that the incentives would be constructed in a manner where even if black people doing the best that they can for themselves, they would not be able to succeed because their own rational decision making in their own best interest would constantly undercut them. And that's not the case. And by the way, any white people who wanted to help black people doing what they could to help black people would also be undercutting black people. And that's also not the case. So the argument about systemic racism, it's based on, on nonsense. It's based on misunderstanding of systemic processes. And uh, that's really the point I just wanted to make here, which is that like, the facts are important about this situation. Saying the facts does not mean that you don't care about what is happening. In fact, <laughs> adhering to the facts is the most important thing you can do if you care. Because while I may need to get up on Facebook or in personal one-on-one -on -one arguments with people who think I'm being insensitive, the fact of the matter is, is that because I know the real problems from looking at the actual data, I uh, recommend the correct, uh, the correct solutions and uh, for these problems. And I'm not the only one, I'm not the only person. I'm saying like, I learned a lot of these things by studying people like Thomas Sowell and Milton Friedman, economists, one's white, one is black, Walter Williams, Larry Elder. All these people, all the, there are all these black intellectuals out there who are like the, the lockstep support for Democrats and progressive policies is the number one problem. They broke the welfare uh, system, disincentivized family creation. That meant that there was uh, an overwhelming number of black children born 
in broken households where they didn't know their father. And one of, unfortunately, the sociological results of that over time has been, uh, has been miscreant behavior. Basically, you don't, the lack of the father in the household contributes to the crime, drug use, gang activity, lack of discipline, lack of educational attainment. And all of those are, are just piled on by more and more policies like minimum wages, rent control, failing public schools, lack of school choice, affirmative action in colleges, the consequential mismatch in colleges, which means that even if a black person uh, attains a degree, they won't, they're not as likely to be prepared uh, for a job as they think, and they can't get on the job training uh, rather than going to college because minimum wage laws make that illegal for companies to hire them at a, at a wage rate that is commensurate to what they can do for the job uh, until they can get more training and, and then be raised and elevated. So it, knowing the facts is important because it means that you identify this entire slew of, of particular programs that overlap in a web of, of oppression which very few people in the black community are actually talking about, and, per, and definitely not Black Lives Matter. They don't talk about any of this. They're not interested in the facts. So you need to know those facts. You need to understand what a systemic, the difference between particular race-based policies versus systemic things that may or may not be racist, and, um, and then actually understanding some economic principles about what the difference is between something that is systemic and something that is built on intent. Anyway, you guys, thank you for listening to this episode of True American. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you guys um, are following us on Spotify. Also, follow our Facebook page. Comment there on the episodes. We really appreciate that. I can't wait to talk to you again later, and I hope you guys are staying safe out there with all the riots and whatnot. Hopefully, sometime soon here, we can get back to a normal flow of life. Thank you for listening.